the last RUF event I'll be at for OSC. So it's pretty sad, but I'm really grateful for the three years that I've been here, getting to know so many of you guys and just uh, being blessed to be a part of this group and this community. It really is awesome. God is at work. Um, but it's pretty awesome. The last thing I get to do is preach to you guys. Um, and so today we're going to be looking at <clears throat> what Paul has been building up to, what Wilson has been preaching on and building up to uh, since the beginning of this semester for the first eight chapters of Romans. So if you would go ahead and open up to Romans chapter eight, we're going to be looking at verses 31 through 39. And definitely keep your Bibles open because this text basically preaches itself. So just make sure I'm saying what it's saying. So uh, with that, let's go ahead and read this passage. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that your name would be magnified in our hearts today, that looking at the cross tonight would turn our doubts and unbelief into praise and certainty in your love and character because of what you've done. I thank you for this group that I've been blessed to be a part of for the last three years, and I ask that you would use this message and passage to convince all of us more of how good and gracious you truly are. I pray all these things in your name, Father. Amen. Well, for any of you guys who have been to Winter Conference or have ever like been on top of a mountain, you know like when you get on top of the mountain, off the ski lift, you, you get off and then you scoot around to the side and then you get to look back down on what you just ascended, right? You get to see the whole mountain in front of you, to see the contours, the beauty, the shape of it, right? You get to have this perspective at the, at the precipice, at the peak. Well, that's basically what this passage is to the last thing we've been looking at in Romans, so this whole first section. Um, when he says these things in verse 31, what he's referring to is the whole body of work that Paul has been writing up until this point. The argument has been building upon itself. And so we need to make sure that we've heard what he's been saying over the past uh, couple chapters. So what he's been saying is this. He's, he's thinking about what he said at the very beginning of the letter, that the state of humanity, uh, that everyone has sinned and fallen short. Romans 3, 10 through 11 says, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. And so because of that, all people are first under the wrath of God for our sins. That's Romans 2, 2, the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And none of us have any hope in and of ourselves. Uh, Romans three twenty says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And that's most of the first three chapters. But then Paul immediately switches. He brings in the hope of Christ right after that. He says in Romans 3, 21 and 22, he says, But now the righteousness of Christ has been manifested through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Right? Salvation is only completed and achieved 
by Christ and given to us by him. And it's only by faith that the righteousness of Christ is applied to us. And it's also what gives us the assurance that we have in him. Romans 5.1 says, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But yet, even as Christians, we still have sin in us that wants to rule in us. But in Christ, it doesn't rule, and it can't take away our salvation. And that's Romans 6.6. It says, Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Right? It's saying we've been released from the burden of the law, from trying to have to work to save ourselves. Now we can obey the law uh, under the freedom that Christ gives us in his work. That's Romans 7, 6 is we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not the old way of the written code. So if we're free from the burdens of the law and uh, enslavement to sin, why do we still sin? That's all of Romans 7, right? 7, 15 says, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. So we see Christ has not fully finished the work that he started in justification and that's being worked out in sanctification, but it's not cause for despair, right? Because he will finish it. That's Romans 7, 24. He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we can be completely secure in our belief in this through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, right? That's what we looked at last week that Wilson preached on. The things that the Holy Spirit does in our lives, that he secures us to Christ and gives us life in it. And he gives us this adoption as sons of God and then gives us assurance and, and strength in, in our suffering as he secures us to the future glory that he promises. And so this is what we've been looking at over the whole semester, right? What Wilson's been preaching on and what Paul has been building up throughout the whole uh, uh, of Romans up until the, this last section in chapter 8 before he switches his arguments. So, but what has he been building to, right? What then shall we say to these things? That's the question. Paul's been, been building all this to show us uh, because of Christ's work, we are completely secure, right? We can look to the cross, we can look to the Father, and we can look to the Son, and we can know that he'll keep us. He will not abandon us no matter what, right? But why does it feel like he has? Sometimes there, there are times where we feel distant from God, where it seems like he's removed all of his grace from our lives, where suffering and doubt, they, they can overwhelm us, and where it seems like he's forgotten us or maybe even never wanted us to begin with. Life does feel like that, and that's why it's really critical for us to have this firm foundation in what Christ has done. And this is why Paul ends this, this section of Romans and giving us this word of hope and assurance of our salvation. He knows that this will be a part of our experience. And he shows us we can have assurance in, in three main rhetorical questions. Those being, first off, who can be against you? Who can condemn you? And then thirdly, who can separate you? Right? Those are the three main points we'll be looking at. Who can be against you? Who can condemn you? And who can separate you? So the first one, in 31 and 32, it says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So this is the immediate answer to the question of, uh, what shall we say to these things? And although it is phrased in a question, right, it's, it's clearly not, right? If this God who is all-powerful, perfect, and, and loving, is, if he's for you, then who can't stand against you, right? There's an implied answer there, right? Think about if, uh, if Knox tried to go beat up Toon, right? W- would Knox really have a fair chance in that fight? Yes. Well, see, you say that, but he might, uh, he might get a couple hits in on his leg or something. Toon might let him win for a second. But there's really no chance that Knox has, right? Toon is not going to lose that fight. And, and just like that, God 
There's nothing that can be against God and succeed, right? But yet there are still things that do try to stand against you. There are still things that's trying to, to be against you. And it, this passage isn't denying that, but against God, all of them will fall. That's, that's a guarantee. And this statement from Paul, it's echoing this sentiment from Psalm 118, verse 6, which is a psalm all about his steadfast love will endure forever. It, you know, it repeats a bunch of times. But it says, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So nothing has any power when made to go against God. But how do we know God's on our side? That's a pretty important question. One answer. It's the cross. And look back at verse 32. Look at how it starts. It said, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Right? This is how we can know that God is for us. This is a really common theme in Romans that you probably picked up on. But the answer for all of our problems in the Christian life, it's to run back to the cross. Back to what Jesus has done. Right when it feels like the entire education system wants you to fail out of your classes or it feels like sin brings us to despair over what we did last night or last weekend or maybe when relationships fall apart and they they tear us apart on the inside. That's when we need to sprint back to the cross and see what he's done for us. But also notice this, too, in this question and the next one, it's phrased from the perspective of what the father has done. Because I think oftentimes it's, it's easy for us to, to look at what Christ has done and be really sure that Christ loves us. But it can be harder to see what the Father has done. It can kind of seem like that uh, the Father just kind of stayed up in heaven and just kind of watched Jesus do all this stuff. And that he really has no stake in the game. It doesn't really matter to him what our salvation is besides that Jesus loves us. But no, this is what this is telling us is that the Father is just as active and he's just as important in the work of salvation as the Son is. And the same for the Spirit. The whole Trinity is involved there. And this verse here we see, it really, it, it echoes what we see in John three sixteen, right? You all know what that says. For God so loved the world, and for God, it's referring to the Father there. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Right? When we look at the cross, we see the whole person of God active. The Father wasn't cold and distant, sitting up in heaven, you know, with his arms crossed, thinking, you know, I could go either way with, uh, with what happens in this whole salvation game. No, when we, when we look at the cross, we see that the Father loves you just as much as the Son does. So what did the Father do at the cross? That's what this verse is, is trying to tell us. Well, when we look at the cross, we can be sure that uh, none of the punishment that our sins deserve was withheld, right? What the Father did here is... He did not withhold or mitigate any of the punishment that sin deserved. Right? This is what it means when we don't have to worry. Uh, this is what it means for us, sorry. It means that we don't have to worry that there is still some sin for us to pay for or some of it to make up for with good works. When Christ was on the cross, he bore the full and complete punishment that our sin earned. The Father didn't withhold a single ounce of wrath. That's what it means when it says it did not. he did not spare his son. And so when we look at the cross... As we can be sure that every single sin, whether it's a little white lie or a passing thought of judgment or a moment of anger or even the biggest sin you've ever committed, you know, whatever popped in your head when I said that, that that was hung on the cross and paid for in full. Right. We see the father is equally involved in that. And the phrase that connects these these two ideas, this uh, uh, gave him up for us all and who did not spare the phrase that connects is his own son. Right, Because the father gave up what he loved the very most. He gave up the person whom he valued the most, all so that we could know him just like the son does. He loved us so much that he punished his own son for what we deserve, right? The greatest conceivable sacrifice that you and I could think of, that's what God did. 
But the father not only did not spare him, he also gave him up for us all. And Paul here, he's writing in this positive-negative comparison where negatively he did not spare his own son and positively, right, he, he gave him up for us. And the reason he does that is to emphasize that the fullness and completeness of what happened on the cross. Everything that needed to happen for salvation there, it did happen. And the distinction also brings out this other element of the cross. Not only was punishment not spared, but God allowed him to be delivered into the hands of evil. So no force of evil was restrained. The wicked hearts of, of men, they were unbridled. And the power of Satan and demons, they were, they were all united around trying to destroy Christ. Right? Every force of evil was against him as he made the sacrifice. And here's why this matters. When Christ died and resurrected, every force that could stand against him, it was defeated. Christ has conquered every single enemy. So who can stand against God when they've already been defeated, right? Who can stand against God when, when everything has been defeated? We, when we face the suffering that this next verse mentions in, in verse 35, we can face them knowing this truth. And this is the evidence that we have that God is for us. He gave up his son for all of his people, all who are Christians. But don't miss this here too. It, it says, for us all. But it's not speaking in a sense of like a communal salvation or like a, a group saving kind of thing. No, when, when he died on that cross, he died for his people, yes, but he died for every single person individually. When he was on that cross, your sins, yours in particular, they were put on the cross and they were paid for. And, and what this means is that we can read this verse and we can apply it directly to our lives, directly to whatever our circumstances are. Right? Listen to what one theologian has to say about this. He says, the father contemplated all, meaning each person. He contemplated all on behalf of whom he delivered up to the son in the distinctiveness of their sin, misery, liability, and need of each. Right? The father didn't have some nebulous idea of who he's going to save, just some group of people. No, he had every single individual person in mind when he was on the cross. We so often feel unseen and unheard by God as we continue through life seemingly without ever hearing anything from him that assures us that we're his. But this verse, it does assure us, right? We can apply this particular verse to our individual lives, whatever those circumstances are. But not only has God done this, then it also says, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul here is he's doing an argument from the greatest to the least, right? If God has already done the, the greatest thing imaginable, this awesome gift, then it really doesn't, make any sense for him to withhold the, the lesser, but they're still awesome, but lesser gifts that he's given us, right? It's not like um, if you buy a stock and it's crashing and you just want to sell to cut your losses, right? God's not going to get to the point where he's just going to sell your stock, cut his losses and be like, mm, I'm kind of done with that. You know, he hasn't really loved me enough or, or been faithful enough to me. That doesn't make any sense in light of the cross, right? That's just not going to happen. But notice what the greatest and first gift that we have that's given to us. First, it's Christ, right? Like I've said, he's already given us the greatest gift in uniting us to him. And because of that, we can know that he will bring our salvation to fruition. He will keep us until the future glory that he promised. And this is part of the, the all things at the end of this verse that it's referring to. And it's also referring to everything that we looked at last week, right? Like the life that the Spirit gives, the adoption that we get as sons, and the assurance of the future glory that we have. That's all included in these all things. And so what this is telling us is no one can stand against us because of what happened on the cross. And the cross assures us that God is for us. But the law still puts pressure on us, right? It makes us doubt God's work. It makes us doubt our status. 
when we let it rule us instead of the freedom that, cross, that the cross has given us. And Paul knows this, and that's why this next section is here. In verse 33 and 34, he asks and answers this question. He says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? We know there are things that do try to accuse us, right? There are things that do try to condemn us. And I think one of the biggest ones is our conscience. Don't mishear me, right? It's a good thing. It's a really good thing when your conscience convicts you of sin and, and, and rightfully shows you where you've been wrong. That's a blessing from the Lord that he's written his law upon your heart. But when your conscience and your, and your mind, they spin and they hurl these accusations of you're not good or you haven't done enough. This is where it can wrongly lead us into despair and disbelief in God and his work. And we can't forget either that also Satan is lobbing these same accusations at us, right? There is real spiritual warfare that happens where the forces of evil are united against you. And they want you to believe the lie that you are not justified in Christ fully. And we also can't forget either that these accusations are not unfounded, right? They're not just plucked out of thin air, right? If they were, then they really wouldn't have any weight. No, right? It really is true that you aren't good enough and that you haven't and you, you can't do enough. That sin, right? That cheating on that test or homework, that night of binge drinking or that day of wallowing in self-pity or that judgmental thought towards a stranger, that look at pornography, that last that minute of unrighteous anger, it is sin, right? And it does deserve condemnation. But what these accusers, these accusations do, they just want you to stop right there. Just in the conversation, just move on. And they just, they give you no hope of signs. Just do better next time. But that's not where Christ leaves us. It's not where God leaves us. When, when we're assaulted by these accusations and we despair because of them, we run to the cross. That's the answer. Even in this question, there's built-in assurance. Right? Look at what it says. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's, it's baked into the question. So since we are in Christ by faith through grace, these accusations, they don't have any weight anymore. And they don't apply to us anymore because of the work on the cross. And even in the Old Testament, this is true. Right? They were looking forward to the cross and we look back upon it. But it's the same thing. Listen to Zechariah 3, 1 through 2. It mirrors this truth. It says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. So the question of who is to condemn, it's the same answer. It's no one, right? Because God justifies. It is God who justifies. And again, that's where the cross is so critical. Because Christ didn't just pay the debt of all our sins. He also positively gave us his righteousness. So when God looks at us, to pronounce his judgment. It's not as if we're just at zero, you know, only our debt has been paid and we still have to work our way up. No, when he looks at us, we are completely justified. He can fully pardon us and give us all the, the good gifts of the all things because we have Christ's righteousness. So there is no more condemnation to be given. It's all been completely satisfied. And when it says that no one can bring condemnation on you anymore, it really means no one. That includes you. You can't bring any condemnation on you. Satan can't bring any condemnation on you. Other people can't do that. And even hear this. Listen to this. Not even God could bring more condemnation upon you. Because think about it. If he did, then he wouldn't be a just God. If Christ really did pay for all your sins, which he did, then if he were to bring more condemnation upon you, that would be unjust, right? Or if he did bring more condemnation on you, then that would mean that Christ's work wasn't actually all sufficient. And that not all your sins were paid for. But that is the whole point of what Romans is about. The whole point of the gospel is that he did pay for all your sins. 
So the answer of who is to condemn, it truly is no one because of the work of Christ. And our reality is now the same as Joshua's in the verse right after what we just looked at in Zechariah 3, 4. Now the reality is, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Right in Christ, we are clothed with his pure righteousness. And so we don't have to live in fear of judgment when we sin. We can go to the Father. We can run to the cross immediately. We don't have to fear or despair because it's already been paid for. Right? We don't have to feel bad enough for our sins or uh, go on a streak of not sinning long enough to, to go to God in prayer. Or we don't have to do enough good things in order for us to be worthy to read the Bible again. Right? We can be confident when we pray to God. We can pray just like Isaiah in Isaiah 58 through 9. We can say... He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Right? The Father's arms, they're open now because of what Christ has done. God has justified you completely, and we can live in light of it. Even though this is the reality, though, it really oftentimes doesn't feel like it is, right? It feels like we're separated from Christ and his work, and these things that stand against us and that condemn us, it make it, they make it feel like God is not present. And Paul knows this too. That's why this next section is here. Listen to verse 35 and 36. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So this last question, it's the most emphatic line that Paul brings to us. And the question, right, is who can separate you from the love of Christ? And just like the last two questions, there are things that do try to stand in opposition to us. There are things that do try to separate us from from Christ. And that's what the list in verse 35 is. All these things, these sufferings are part of the Christian life. and, And God knows they'll be a part of our experience. Because suffering does make us feel separated from God, right? I mean, you could even think about this stage of life. We're at the end of a pretty long semester. There's probably been nights of lying in bed at night, despairing for your future. I'm sure there's been physical suffering with injury or sickness or or ailment. Maybe you've been looked down upon by your peers or professors for believing something that kind of looks silly to them. Um, There's seasons of spiritual depression that have probably happened where God feels so distant. Or overwhelming shame from past sin and failures creeps back in. Or even terrible circumstances like the loss of a family member or a friend. It is suffering. We don't just ignore it and move on. You can't just try to toughen yourself up or pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? That can work for a time, but you're not strong enough to keep yourself forever. We're just not. And this is the reality of the Christian life, and that's why Paul includes this section from Psalm 44, which Rachel read for us earlier. Right? It says, For your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This isn't a new thing that we've just started experiencing after Christ, right? The people of God have always had to endure suffering. They've always cried out to God in it. And in the context of this psalm here, the, the author is lamenting the fact that, the, that he and the Israelites have, are being oppressed by these outside nations and these foreign powers. Their freedom and prosperity has been taken away from them. But the author has been faithful to God here, right? He, he hasn't been... Uh, running away from him like so many of the Israelites have in the Old Testament, and yet he suffers still. But he still hopes in God, right? And what does he base this hope in? 
He bases it in what God has already done. He remembers the faithfulness that God has shown in driving out the enemies before the hand of Joshua and Moses when they were conquering the promised land and remembering the work that God did and delivering them from the Egyptians and the Exodus. He says in verse 7 through 8, But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Even in the midst of this suffering, even though it's present, he knows what God has done and knows that God has been faithful. And just like that, Paul has been saying throughout this, this whole section that we are to do the same thing. We, we need to look back on what God has done in order to be assured that he will continue to do what he's promised. That's why we have to, we have to understand what he was talking about in the earlier parts of, the, of this whole book. That's why we ran through everything that Romans has been talking about. We need to see what Christ has done in clarity in order to see his faithfulness for us. And it's also why Paul, right here in this section, he answers this question by calling us to look back on the whole work of, of, of Christ. Even in this section, he does this. And verse 34b right here, it's really the, the theological heart of this whole passage. Listen to what it says. It says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Right? The, he's, Paul here has laid out this, this path of assurance, this, these four things that really show us the work of Christ. And so uh, the first main thing that he does here is he reassures that Christ is the one who died. And this passage can sound really repetitive at times, I'm sure, but you picked up on, on the main drum it's beating, right? It's look to the cross because our assurance is in what Christ has done in his death, right? But it's not just that, right? Look at the next phrase. It says more than that, who was, who was raised. And this is almost like a proof within a proof, right? How do we know that Christ's death on the cross actually did anything? Well, we look to the resurrection because he rose from the dead. That's how victory was secured over every enemy, right? Like we looked at earlier. It was all defeated in his resurrection from the grave. And then Paul brings in these two new emphases of Christ's work. The third thing he says is, who is at the right hand of God? And this is all about what Jesus' position in heaven is. Jesus, he's ascended up to the highest position of authority that there is in the whole universe. And this is super important because it means that no one can displace us. No bigger power is going to come take us or take Jesus off of his throne, right? It's not like, remember that scene in uh, The Phantom Menace in Star Wars where they're underwater in Naboo and they're being chased by that big fish and then this other bigger fish comes and gets him and Qui-Gon, and then there's always a bigger fish, right? No, there, there is no thing that's bigger than Christ that's going to come knock him off the throne, that's going to replace him, right? Um, what this should remind you of is the very first sermon that I gave to you guys. Remember that one? That was Daniel chapter 7 where Christ ascends into heaven and takes his position on the throne. Listen to what verse 13 and 14 of Daniel 7 says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Right? This is the authority that Christ has ascended to. This is, he's been given all dominion, all glory, and the whole kingdom. Right? And what this means is that we don't have to worry about our status before God. Christ is not going to be usurped. 
No one can whisper into God's ear, you know, that person you saved, they're really not that great. You should probably just, just cut bait with them and condemn them. He, he will not be convinced of that because of Christ's position on the throne. And we can always be secure and comforted in our salvation because of that truth. But not only does he reign in a passive sense, Jesus is working for us today, to this hour, right now. Right? Look at the last phrase of what it says. It says, who indeed is interceding for us? Right? When Christ's work on earth was, was finished and he secured our justification and he ascended into heaven, it's not like he just got up there and he just kind of sat down and was like, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to do anything else. He didn't get up there and just forget about uh, his people, leaving us to fend for ourselves. No, on the contrary, he's, he's just as active in our lives right now as he was on the cross. This is Jesus exercising his high priestly duties, right? We just looked at his kingly duties on the throne, right? This is what Christ does as high priest. You see how Paul has been drawing us into these further levels of intimacy that we have with Christ. Christ has not only saved us, but he remembers us. He remembers you. He goes to the Father on our behalf. And this is such a beautiful truth because it means when you sin, whatever that sin might be, and you take it and you repent, not only are you already forgiven, but Christ, he's already brought that before the Father. This word for intercede, it's the same as verse 26, when the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. Right? Christ is bringing your personal, your individual needs to the Father every day, every hour. When you pray to God, you, you can know that not just the Spirit, but Christ himself is interceding for you. And we see a, a really cool example of this that Christ did in his earthly ministry. Listen to what Jesus tells Peter in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, knowing that Peter is going to uh, uh, not betray, whatever. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Deny. Deny. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know why that word left me. But okay, listen to what he says. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Right? Even when Jesus knew that Peter was going to deny him, he still went to the Father on Peter's behalf. And that's what he does for you. That's such an awesome truth that Christ, not only does he not forget you or move on after you're saved, he will keep you. He does remember you. So the answer to who can separate us from the love of Christ, it has to be made in light of this reality. Otherwise, we can easily come to the wrong conclusion. And just like the questions before this, the answer to this one, who can separate you from the love of Christ? It's no one. That's what Paul tells us in the most complete and emphatic verse of this whole section. The whole thing, it's been leading up to this verse. Who can be against you? Who can condemn you? Who can separate you? It's all here in, in verse 37 and 39. Listen to this. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. First here, it's the fact that we are more than conquerors through Christ. So what have we conquered? That's a pretty important question. Well, it's referring to this list of, of suffering and tribulation in verse 35, right? Like we've already looked at, Christ has already conquered all of this. Right? When we look at what Jesus has done on the cross, this list in verse 35, it kind of shows us what he, what, he, what he went through. And Christ has conquered all of this. And so when he rose from the grave, right, every force of evil, that's part of what he conquered. This, right, like we've already said. Colossians 2.15 says this same thing. He says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 
Right? Christ has fully triumphed over all suffering. Obviously, this doesn't mean that there's no more suffering, clearly. But it does mean that suffering and trials, they won't defeat us. They won't have victory over us in the end. And when it says more than conquerors, it's to put stress on the completeness of the victory that we have. Right? <clears throat> Even when it seems like adversarial forces are winning, they're not. They've already lost. Listen to theologian John Murray, what he has to say about this truth. That's the quote I included in the, uh, in the handout. Only by this transcendent truths, perceived only by faith, is this unbelievable truth always so. Christ is the factor that transcends all appearances of defeat in the presence. Through Christ, all is victory. And this is all built on verse 34. Because it doesn't feel like this is true all the time. Because suffering is real and it's terrible, right? But in Christ, it won't defeat you. It can't drag you down to hell. It can't rip you away from the Father. right? So we have to know the cross daily and hourly because of that. Our foundation has to be upon the cross. That's why Paul put so much emphasis on this answer by using this, this final list that he has. And we could go through each of these things individually. But um, really the last part... Um, that's what, that's what really hits on what this list is trying to communicate to us. It says, nor anything else in all of creation. As Wilson helped put it to me, this list isn't uh, A or Z. It isn't just the things included on this list and just that. No, it's an A to Z, A through Z list. Everything that could be included, it is included on this list. And that's what this last phrase is emphasizing, that there's absolutely nothing with the ability to remove you from God. And the end of this section is that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This love of God that we're given in Christ, it's, it's the last proof that God will keep us as his children. Because God's love in its nature, it doesn't ebb and flow with time. It, it's constant. It's not based on feeling or performance. It's steadfast, right? God is love. That's one of his attributes. And it's his very nature to love, right? Since he's been loving the Son for all of eternity, the love that the Son shows us is the same love that the Father has for him. And so when we're included in this love, there's even more complete surety that he won't forsake you. And once again, it's only through Christ, right? That's the last thing that it says. It's only in Christ that we have access to this love of the Father, right? So we need to make sure that we, we believe that what Christ says. We need to make sure we believe that Christ did die on the cross, that we are sinners in desperate need of help. And we are deserving of condemnation for our sin, but that through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, by dying on our behalf, that he took on our punishment we deserve. And now we have this hope, we have this security and assurance in his love. Right? That's the gospel. And as Christians, we can be sure, you can be sure, that there is nothing that will have the ability to separate you from him. No one can stand against you. No one has any ability to condemn you. Right? That is what this message is all about. That's what Christ did for you on the cross. So keep looking back at the cross. That's what this message is telling you. You have to keep running back to what Christ has done. That's where the surety of your salvation stands. Let's pray. God, I thank you very much for this indescribably great work that you've done on the cross. And you, even though you are the Almighty, you're so much greater and more powerful that you chose to make yourself a father to us as undeserving people. God, I ask that our hearts would be full in the knowledge that you right now are keeping your people even in our suffering and that your son right now is interceding for us and whatever our circumstances or our needs are, you are good and you are loving God. Thank you. In your name I pray, amen.